Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy, and I'm pleased to be with you today with my co-host, Leah Kaufman, who will give you some insight into what you'll hear in podcast number eight. In this podcast, we'll meet Dr. Van Mao, an early pioneer in the field of regenerative medicine. He is one of the creators of the Generalized Theory for Classical Materials, which helps researchers understand the physical forces acting on natural tissues. In addition to his scientific accomplishments, Dr. Mao's contributions to science policy helped to bring the field of regenerative medicine through its turbulent adolescence in the 1990s. Here's my conversation with Dr. Van Mao. We're joined today by Dr. Van Mao. He's the Stanley Dicker Professor of Biomedical Engineering and Orthopedic Bioengineering at Columbia University, and he chairs the Department of Biomedical Engineering, which, by the way, is a department he helped to found and develop. Dr. Mao, you have worked in this field of tissue engineering since before anybody thought to name it that. Right. How did you come to be a tissue engineer? Well, it's, uh, I'll give you a fairly longer version uh, to a simple question, but I think people uh, will appreciate the answer. I was a uh, thoroughly trained uh, engineer, background in mechanics and mathematics. I was actually working at the uh, Bell Telephone Laboratory writing programs for the anti-submarine network. And that network uh, is military research, so and it was top secret. Uh, that network was the one that uh, developed for the East Coast, and it was the one that found the Russian submarine gone to Cuba that precipitated the Cuban Missile Crisis. So that was a project I was working on. But as Vietnam War was escalating, uh, many uh, university people or high-level research people were getting disenchanted with the military research. And so uh, I had an opportunity. Uh, Rensselaer, uh, my alma mater, invited me back to as a faculty member. So I left the laboratory and uh, went back. And as I arrived, <coughs> I thought to myself, what can I do to uh, apply my knowledge and talents to do something that might contribute to the betterment of mankind as opposed to military endeavors to, uh, for uh, destruction purposes? So I decided, and coincidentally about the same time, there were a few pioneers in the field who beginning to, with the same idea of applying engineering science to study biomedical phenomena. So these were really some of the great peoples of the time. Some of them later on became knighted uh, in England, uh, Sir Geoffrey Taylor, Sir James Lighthill, Y.C. Fung from Caltech, uh, Ted Wu from Caltech. They were all applying uh, mechanics and mathematical principles to study various biological phenomena. So this sort of intrigued me. So I thought, well, why can't I just uh, apply my uh, knowledge this way as well. So I started reading a variety of things. Uh, one was uh, how the muscle function. Uh, another one is how nerves function, or how the ear function, or how uh, what is bone made out of. How does the lung work? How does the heart work? So being uh, kind of ambitious and maybe driven uh, because of my uh, growing up years, uh, I wanted to be in an area which was not very well developed yet. It was sort of nascent. Uh, after all, 
People studying nerves have won the Nobel Prize. People studying the heart has won the Nobel Prize, and on and on. So who am I to compete against those kinds of uh, work? So I got into an area, uh, the musculoskeletal area, while it's very important, but the technological sophistication of the work being done at that time was very rudimentary. So I thought, well, if I were to simply bring some of the more sophisticated knowledge of mechanics and mathematics into it, I can contribute something. So I looked around and uh, I uh, serendipitously uh, got into the area of arthritis and I found that it was a virgin territory, basically. And so I got into it and uh, systematically developed the program to, uh, to, uh, to do research. So you found a problem and you took a skill set and you basically applied a new set of tools to a problem that was uh, undiscovered yeah. real estate, yeah. <laughs> undeveloped uh, real estate. There was, a, to me, a very influ influential paper that was published by Y.C. Fung in the January issue of the 1968 Applied Mechanics Review. He wrote a very long article on the history of uh, biomedical engineering or uh, the uh, application of continuum mechanics for the studies of biological tissues. And he went through the history of uh, the area, every going all the way back to Galileo, or Helmholtz, and uh, Boisel, and these really great uh, studies. And he concludes at the end of this uh, wonderful paper, and I re certainly recommend to anybody who wants to get a bearing on this, <clears throat> on where we came from, is the at the very end, he said, well, what does these problems on there, what does the engineer bring to it? What the engineer brings is a set of new skills and techniques to look at the problem another way. Mm -hmm. By looking at the problem another way, you can gain new insights and understanding. And that's exactly what I did. And ultimately, as I understand it, you developed a computer program can you describe what that did? Uh, you're jumping ahead a little. I'm sorry. Let's, where should we? Where, okay. should, where in the middle should we go? Okay. Uh, engineering science technology requires several essential components. Uh, one component is a detailed description of how the material behaves. A second component. Uh, this will come back to us when we talk about tissue engineering. A second component is what is the, uh, how can you develop a way to accurately quantitate uh, these complex anatomical forms? For example, uh, now today, because we have digital uh, technology, but before we had digital technology, if I were to try to give a quantitation to the way your face looks, or the way your eye is, or the way your nose is, and so forth, it'd be extremely difficult. So we needed to develop a way to quantitate the anatomy. So that was, uh, I did uh, invented those methods as well. So, it's, so it becomes objective becomes rather objective. than subjective description. Right. Okay. So the third uh, important component is the fact that we have to know the, what kind of uh, motion that our body experiences, what kind of acceleration. Uh, what kind of forces act on our body. For example, as a heart 
pumps uh, the blood. It is consumed, while each beat does not uh, produce a lot of force, but the energy required, as an example, in any uh, one day, as an example, the heart pumps 20 tons of blood. So you got to have that energy somewhere, and that force that the heart puts out has got to utilize that energy effectively to move the blood around. So you have to understand all those things before you can really solve a problem of uh, realistic importance. So that you felt was, those were your first tasks, to apply those to... The first task was uh, to come up with a, uh, a general way to describe how biological tissues deform, and to, in, in a general way to include as much of the characteristics of a biological tissue. Now, biological tissues are far more complex in composition and structure than most uh, uh, inanimate uh, subject matters. So, you have fibers, you have proteins, you have sugar, you have water, and the uh, fibers are organized in a certain way. You have ions that's moving in and out. You have diffusion, you have flow, you have stress and strain. So how do you come up with a, a law which can describe all these things? So I was fortunate enough to work with one of my long-term colleagues to develop a theory, which later on is widely regarded as the generalized theory for classical mechanics, for classical materials. And it can be used for flow, diffusion, analysis of stress and strains. So anybody, and therefore, if it's so general, then it can be applied to any biological tissue. So what, I, I understand it's, you're saying it's necessary to characterize or quantitate to understand the forces that tissue undergoes, but why, tell me, and I'm asking a stupid reportorial question, but why is it necessary to understand all those things? What problem are you trying to solve? Okay. You're sitting there in front of your microphone, uh, if I, if you were to just stand up, simple task, the forces in your hip is 20 megapascal. Now, in common daily usage, that's 3,000 pounds per square inch, wow. just as you skid up from your chair. Now, if you think about the fact that what is the air pressure in your car's tire, typically it's 30 pounds per square inch. So the forces that exist in your hip is roughly 100 times, 10 to 100 times bigger than uh, in the, the pressure in the, your tire, car tire. Now, if you take that force and that's constantly applied daily, every day, for years on end, over a one-year cycle of time, you are applying psychically a million times of the pressure, 3,000 pounds per square inch, a million times in a year. And even if you were to bend a paper clip, which is much stronger, you bend it 15, 20 times, it breaks. Mm -hmm. So how come for biological tissues it doesn't break? So when it breaks, what happens? You have arthritis. Or in the heart, when you have a heart tissue break, you have a heart attack. When you have blood vessels, when it bursts, 
you have an aneurysm, you have a, a stroke if it's in the head. So these fundamental questions of biomaterials has to be answered before you create the artificial substitute. Gotcha. And this is actually something I hope our listeners have picked up on now as we've gone through a couple of these podcasts, is that the basic science is necessary in order to move any field forward. You, somebody has to be looking at those details about how things function in their natural form, why they're successful, before they can be synthesized in any way at the lab. That, that's the great lesson of the 1990s. That's the great lesson that we should all be cognizant of that caused the failure of tissue engineering. Tell me a little more about that. Okay. Uh, in the late 1980s, uh, as the world was seeing the demise of the Soviet Union, uh, across America, the funding agencies such as DOD, uh, various, uh, even uh, NSF, funding was precipitously dropping. At the same time, uh, the engineering school enrollment was declining rapidly through the, uh, from the beginning of the 90s through almost to the end. However, there are still always, and there will always be, very smart people who want to do technical work. And these very smart people are looking for ways to go to graduate school, get funded, uh, because it's very expensive to go to uh, engineering uh, graduate school. So, the and at the same time, because of the, the drop of the uh, engineering enrollment, people at the National Science Foundation wanted to put a spur into maybe developing a new field to attract students. Now, Commonly, it's been uh, the analogy is: Would you rather uh, study pipe flow in an air con uh, flow in an air conditioning duct? Or would you rather study like to study blood flow in the artery? The blood flow in the artery is much more interesting; it's much related to the human. Okay, so by and using the same engineering te technology, so NSF uh, started a uh, couple of workshops. Uh, within which I participated, and the concept of tissue engineering was developed. And seven of us uh, who participated in those workshops wrote the definition for tissue engineering, and it is taking cells out of the tissue and put it into biometrics using appropriate biological or biochemical factors to encourage it to grow and form tissues. In a nutshell, that's tissue engineering. So it was a very uh, blue sky, pie uh, in the sky type of uh, idea that we have engineering technology, we have biological uh, uh, ways to do things. Let's get them together and make tissues. Very altruistic and inspiring. Well, what happened was that it was too naive. We didn't really verbalize it, but we didn't realize that you really, the first step is to be able to create a material which resembles the tissue. Mm -hmm. So you create this material that feels like it, uh, but will it be able to withstand these high pressures day in and day out? 
So during the decade of the 90s, and immediately following those workshops, uh, ABC News, Diane Sawyer gets up and says, this is the, the, uh, the profession of the de uh, decade. And Newsweek has these new front page articles and you see these uh, phantasmagoria of people with all sorts of artificial parts. Well, we weren't ready yet. Mm -hmm. We were just barely able to make the tissue. But by then, because the 90s, it was such an exuberant uh, economic time period, money was pouring in. So normally cautious people abandoned the caution and started doing work thinking that simply because you make a piece of tissue that it's going to be able to put into the body and work. Well, the analogy I give you is we know rubber as a substance existed for a long time. Firestone takes the rubber and makes the tire. If they're not careful in the design and manufacturing and put it in cars, you will have accidents. Remember that? You have those mm -hmm. accidents. So it's the same analogy. You can make the material, but if you don't do the correct analysis, it's going to fail. Mm -hmm. And it did fail. Mm -hmm. And over the 1990s, it's conservatively estimated over a billion dollars worth of venture capital went down to two. So now, what happens is that the field is turned sour. And what about all those young people who got into it? Right? Yeah. So now they're stuck. So we had to re-engineer tissue engineering. So I was fortunately in the position to help re-engineer it. So uh, there is an instrument uh, committee called the U.S. National Committee on Biomechanics. We created the idea of functional tissue engineering. And again, the National Science Foundation liked it, the NIH liked it, they started funding programs, and now we're bringing in those who can make the tissue together with traditional engineers who can design, analyze the tissue uh, in, in vitro as well as possibly in situ after you implant it in some animal models before you go on to patient uh, care. So that whole step was not done in the 90s. The funding from Wall Street came way before that was done. And so who gets left holding the bag? The U.S. government mm -hmm. and Wall Street. Mm -hmm. So I, I actually, I have a clip I'm going to play this afternoon. Have you, did you see the movie Wall Street? Yes. There's a scene in there by Michael Douglas. It talks about what motivates companies. And his greed is a good thing. And that's what happened in the 1990s. So would you say the field is moving in the right direction now? You're bringing, to sum up, all of the disciplines to bear yeah. on problems. I, I think, well, I'm trying to bring all the disciplines to bear and uh, collaborate in a meaningful way to uh, different groups will strategize differently on how to collaborate but bringing in all the disciplines so that there's no big loophole left because the entire engineering discipline I want, I'm campaigning to come into play on this because it's very challenging problems. And when that is done, you mark my word, tissue engineering is coming. Functional tissue engineering is coming. From it, irrational exuberance to functional tissue engineering. For irrational exuberance 
to rational studies in functional tissue engineering. Good. We'll look forward to that day. I'm sorry to say that we're out of time. I want to thank, thank you, you for joining much. me today. I appreciate I've so the opportunity. With you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. What a pleasure. Thanks, Leah. For more information about Dr. Miles' current work, please see our website at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And Leah, can you share with us who we're going to visit with on our next podcast? Next, we'll talk with Dr. Savio Wu, who has established much of what we know about how the ligaments, tendons, and bones in our joints function. Dr. Wu's work has helped to inform regenerative medicine as well as improve injury rehabilitation program. That's podcast number nine coming to you in mid-May. Thanks, Leah. And let me remind our listeners, if you have suggestions for future podcasts or some feedback relative to the programs you've listened to, please send us an email at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. As a reminder, we can't reply to individual emails, but we do welcome your suggestions and feedback. And let me remind you that we are not physicians and we cannot provide diagnosis or medical advice. We hope you'll stay subscribed to the RSS feed of this podcast at www.regenerativemedicinetoday.com and we look forward to you joining us in a few weeks with our next interview. Thank you.